Good morning. Come to our yeah, final reading in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 26. I must say, as I've been reading through Leviticus, I've just been amazed at how wonderful the promised land would have been um, had Israel kept to the covenant. It's just amazing. Real promised land. So Leviticus, um, starting at verse 1 of chapter 26. Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves, and do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. Observe the Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until planting, and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. I will grant peace in the land, and you will lie down, and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land, and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies, and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. I will look on you with favour and make you fruitful and increase your numbers, and I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you will have to move it out to make room for the new. I'll put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. Then we're going to move on to Galatians. In the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 7. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, 
Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Good morning. We're, we're on. Great to see you in church this morning. I uh, hope you're enjoy, enjoying the season, uh, as Matt said, the Christmas season. Um, I'm going to pray as we uh, open up Leviticus 26 uh, and look at this uh, second last chapter uh, in the book of Leviticus. So let's pray together. Our great Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much. Uh, we've been so blessed as we've looked through the book of Leviticus Uh, We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to continue to be not just hearers of your word, uh, but also doers. Please continue to bless us as we listen to what you have to say. We pray this morning um, that you'd help me to speak faithfully and clearly. Father, we pray that you would uh, bring your word onto the hearts of all of us and that we might respond in a way that um, brings great pleasure uh, to to you and your holy name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, life is full of choices, uh, full of decisions to make. Um, from the moment you get up in the morning, uh, throughout your day, you are making hundreds of decisions, some of them conscious, some of them subconscious, some of them good, some of them not so good. Um, some of them are completely trivial, uh, and some of them are really key and really important. Um, you made a decision to get out of bed this morning, uh, which was a good decision. You made a decision to come to church, which which was an even better decision. Um, You made a decision to come to the Lakes Church, the best decision of all. Um, All kinds of decisions, but some decisions are clearly very trivial, and it doesn't really matter uh, if you get them wrong. Um, Although I've noticed it doesn't mean that we don't spend a lot of time on those decisions. In fact, we're quite capable of spending lots of time on things that don't matter at all, that hardly have any significance whatsoever uh, into eternity. Like choosing food when you go to the supermarket. Have you noticed how many choices there are uh, as you go down the aisles? Uh, Just to go down to the store to buy bread and milk, there are lots and lots of choices to make. I went down and actually counted Uh, If you go down and buy um, a carton of milk, how many different choices do you think you've got? It's more than 20. You've actually got 42 different options. There are 42 different kinds of milk that you can buy. If you go down and buy a loaf of bread, um, you can choose between 51 different kinds of loaves of bread. That is insane, isn't it? I just want a loaf of bread. Um, Coffee, 
There are 73 different kinds of coffee. If you buy a pack of cigarettes, you've got 162 different bad choices to make. I stood there a long time counting those. You know, I once went into a Manchester store to buy one pillow. Um, I don't go into Manchester stores that often. But you know, there are 15 different types of pillows that I could choose from. There are the high, there's the high pillow, there's the low pillow, there's the dense pillow or the soft pillow, and then you can have small, high and dense, or you can have small, low and dense, you can have small, low and soft, or small, high and soft, you can have large, high, and it goes on and on and on. I finally chose one, I took it to the counter, and the lady looked at it and said, oh, I, I wouldn't choose that one if I were you. <laughs> it's insane. There are, there are so many choices to make, but they are trivial. But some decisions are major life-changing decisions, aren't they? If you get them wrong, you are going to face the consequences for a long time to come. And good decisions will bear fruit for many years to come, if not a lifetime, but also bad decisions can haunt us well past the, when the decision is made. And it's tricky, isn't it? Because sometimes, I mean, we're not all knowing, we're not God, so we actually don't even know what, what, whether decisions are trivial or major at times. Sometimes there are two very distinct options, choices in life to be made, where you can go one way or you can go the other. Touchstone decisions, decisions that will affect our whole lives and set the whole direction uh, of our lives, of our future. And that is the kind of decision that Israel is, is needing to make as they come uh, to Mount Sinai and this final chapters of Leviticus. So we're going to focus uh, on Leviticus chapter 26 this morning. And not only do they have a very important decision to make, as God speaks to us this morning, um, we have a really important decision to make as well. And even more than that, we have a really important decision to pass on to others. So let's dive in. Let's have a look at Leviticus chapter 26, if you want to have that uh, open in front of you. Uh, The context is that Israel are at the foot of Mount Sinai. um, And God is laying out two very different futures um, for God's people. And it's very clear as you read through the chapter, isn't it? One is full of abundant blessing. Uh, It is absolutely magnificent what God has in store for his people uh, as you read through the blessings of the first half of the chapter. It could not be better. It really is a foretaste of the age to come. But the other is completely awful, isn't it? Uh, The other could not be worse. It is completely black. It is full of curses. It is full of judgment. And so Israel have that choice. Which way will they go? What decision will they make? What future will be theirs as they uh, stand there before God at the foot of Mount Sinai? And you notice as you go through uh, the book, sorry, the chapter, chapter 26 of Leviticus, that the word if is repeated so many times, isn't it? In fact, in the last two chapters of Leviticus, the word if 
is repeated 30 times. 30 times God says, if, uh, if you do this, then I will do this. 30 times. If you obey me, I will do this. If you will not listen to me, then I will do this. If you confess your sins, then I will do this. It's like the terms and conditions of a contract. Uh, That apparently was very common in the ancient world to set out all the possible consequences of obeying or disobeying um, the terms. And it's really, I guess, not that different to contracts today. Uh, If you follow these terms and conditions, this is what will happen. But if you don't, uh, this is also what will happen. The difference being that it is rightly so God who sets the terms of the contract of the covenant. And God God is saying, here is the deal. Let me be absolutely clear with you. This is what will happen uh, depending on how you respond. I think what we're meant to see here is that God is giving his people a real choice. Uh, Notwithstanding that God is sovereign over all, that's that's a a huge theme in the Bible, Uh, notwithstanding that he's made promises to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, that he will keep. Uh, to gather a people to himself uh, and and to bless and to to through them bless the world. Notwithstanding those things, this part of the Bible is showing us that they need to make a decision on where they stand with God and that there will be consequences for the decision that they make. And it's no different for us, is it? God respects our decisions. They are Real decisions, Uh, they are decisions that have consequences. God actually takes our decision seriously. He takes it seriously when we follow him. He takes it seriously when we decide to reject him. And it's why at the lakes, it's why as Christians, we keep putting that decision before people, isn't it? What are you going to do about God? What are you going to do about Christ? Which way are you going to go? This is what God has done. This is what God says. It is wonderful. How are you going to respond? Or actually, we just keep asking people, what are you going to do now that God has spoken in Christ? Or actually, we keep calling people to make a decision, don't we, about Christ? And we keep talking to people about the outcomes, uh, the consequence of their decision. It's why we plead with people. It's why we pray for people uh, as they make this really important decision on God. Well, at the beginning of this chapter, notice that God lays out the fundamentals of the law. It's like a little summary of the law that's been detailed through the book of Leviticus. He says, I am the Lord your God. Do not bow down before the idols. Uh, He talks about keeping uh, his Sabbaths, that you might remember what I've done for you. He's he's saying to them, I am your holy God. You are a sinner. You deserve to die, as we've seen over and over again in the book of Leviticus. But there is atonement for sins. Have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. That is who I am. That is what I've done. 
And he says in verse 3, If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will bless you. I will bless you. That is, your life is going to be good. It is going to be very good. Um, And notice the kinds of blessings that come out um, cascading through as these chapters go on and on and on. You'll have plenty of food. Uh, The ground will yield rich crops. The trees will produce abundant fruit. You'll you'll eat all the food you want. Have a look at um, verse 10, a beautiful verse. You You will still be eating last year's harvest when you will move it out to make room for the new. Uh, it's, it's the five-star smorgasbord. Uh, when you, just keep, you can just keep going back for more and more and more. And that's not gluttony, it's enjoyment of God's good creation. When one plate is finished, the next is arriving. It's abundant provision. And there'll be peace there in the land. You'll have peace... Uh, No one will make you afraid. You can relax. You don't need to look over your shoulder in fear. Uh, They they feared wild animals. That, that, That keeps coming up in this chapter. That was a reality for them. But God will remove them so that they can live in peace. They feared enemies. Real physical enemies, other nations who hated them and wanted to rule them. But God says he will give them an easy victory over them so they can be calm, so they can relax and enjoy the land that God has given them. And because they can relax and enjoy the land that God has given them and they are protected, they will be fruitful and they will increase in number. Do you get the picture? Big families, abundantly provided for, secure, safe, enjoying the best of God's creation. Can you imagine what life would be like in the land? Can you imagine how wonderful it would be not to be afraid? It's it's not wild animals for us, is it? but maybe it's the fear of criticism uh, or the fear of debt or the fear of failure or the fear of death. Can you imagine what it would be like not to worry but just to enjoy? You know, the biggest blessing of all is still to come in this chapter. The biggest blessing is the blessing of God himself. That's what Leviticus wants to to tell us here. It is the gift of God's presence amongst his people, that God is dwelling in their midst. Have a look at verse 11. He says, I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Do you remember when God first did that? Does that ring a bell, that, that, that verse, elsewhere in the Scriptures? God walked with his people in the Garden of Eden. He walked with Adam and Eve in fellowship, in good relationship. God, Adam and Eve were God's people, living in God's place under God's rule. 
And, and the promise to Abraham after things went pear-shaped in Genesis chapter, chapter 3 was that God would again establish a place, a land, where God's people can dwell in safety under the loving rule of God and he would be their God and they would be his people. It's a very important point that at the centre of being blessed is having God on your side. At the centre of being blessed is having right relationship with God, having access to God. See, what it's saying is the greatest blessing is not a thing, it's a person, a person that you have relationship with. And I reckon that's uh, a little difficult perhaps for us to grasp because we so often think of blessing as material things and material things are blessings and we're greatly blessed with material things in this part of the world. Um, It was only yesterday morning uh, I was out fishing. There were three men in the boat. Uh, and I was one of them. And there were three fish caught. And I was the one who caught those three fish. <laughs> By some fluke, some, something happened. Uh, but one of the other men said to me, you are blessed. And I was blessed. I enjoyed two of those fish last night. Um, but Leviticus is saying to us, no, people and relationship." And most important person, God, in relationship with him, is the centre of the blessing. God himself is the blessing. Peace with him. You see it all through the Bible, don't you? Not only uh, in Genesis, where God walks with his people. Throughout the Old Testament, God dwells with Israel. He tabernacles with them. Um, Jesus comes as God in the flesh, right in our midst. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. By faith, God dwells within us, doesn't he? By his spirit. Um, in Corinthians, it's the, the, the gathering of God's people, church, is, is spoken of as the place where God is in their midst. Uh, in the book of Revelation, God is before us on his throne and we enjoy him forever. But back here in Leviticus What a great God this God is to know. Have a look down at verse 13. He is the God who sets people free from slavery. He reminds them he is the God who's brought them out of Egypt. He's broken the the bars of their yoke. He enables them to lift their heads high, to have dignity. And isn't that so true of God's people that it's true for us even more so as we put our trust in Jesus, isn't it? God promises us that we can be free from the bondage of sin, sin that leads to judgment. In Jesus, we're forgiven sinners. Uh, We can hold up our heads high because of Jesus. We don't need to be ashamed. Uh, We're forgiven people. We're free people. We're not slaves to sin anymore, even though sometimes we... That is how we act. That is how we behave. That That is where our thinking is. But God says, no, you are a son. You are free. You are forgiven. You are no longer under the condemnation of the law. You've been filled with the Spirit. You have every spiritual blessing. You have access to the very throne room of God. You are precious. 
in God's sight. How blessed is it to be one of God's people? And when you hear all that, and you hear that it's all from the Bible, the material blessings, the relationship with God, it's no surprise, is it, that many say that God promises prosperity to those who trust in him. Um, They call it the prosperity gospel. And there are plenty of people out there. Um, Here's one of them, a guy by the name of Joel Osteen. And there's a quote from um, Joel. He says, God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, to fulfil the destiny that God has laid out for us. And I could... could do that, couldn't I? I need to put on a suit. Um, I need to be a lot better looking. I need to have some plastic surgery. Um, But he draws huge crowds in in America because that is what he's preaching. And many would say, but isn't that what the Bible's teaching? It is all laid on for God's people, isn't it? Aren't they the ones who are abundantly blessed? There's healing, physical, emotional, relational... There's wealth, untold riches. There's relationship, quality and quantity. But here's the thing I want to say. The question is, when? When will these things be complete? When will these things be a reality? When will the believer experience the things that we so long for, that would tempt us to go to Joel Osteen's church and receive them now. Is this life, sorry, in this life, there is blessing. There is blessing for the believer. It is, it is good to be loved by God. It is good to be loved by God's people and to love them. But it is mixed. It is mixed with suffering, isn't it? The blessing is not yet complete. The blessing in its entirety is not yet completely before us. And the Bible's very clear on this. Uh, Complete healing, wealth and abundance is yet to come. But it will come at the return of Jesus. It's understanding the era in which we live between the time of Jesus' resurrection and the time that Jesus will return. We've talked about this before. It's called the overlap of two ages. Uh, We've entered into the new age. Uh, We've entered into real relationship with God and there is blessing associated with that. Um, But we are still also part of the old age where sin and sickness still reign and we still await the consummation, the completion of the new age where we'll have new bodies and we'll receive that blessing in its totality. Um, We wait for that day when it says in Revelation, there'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things would have passed away. Hallelujah. And we wait patiently. The Bible says we are to wait patiently for that day. Romans 8 talks about it as people who are groaning for redemption. We have been redeemed, but we wait for the full redemption to show itself. So there will be pleasure now, but there will also be pain now. Jesus was also clear on this. 
Uh, You look on your outlines there, Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, there is blessing. But look at what else Jesus says. Along with that, persecutions. There will be trouble. There will be suffering. And in the age to come, eternal life. When Jesus returns, there will be unending prosperity. There will be unending blessing. God will not hold back. He will completely shower us with every blessing. And that's really good to be reminded of because... Every blessing that you experience now, every time you you say to yourself, this is so good, Uh, every meal with friends, every good family gathering, every sunset, every good wine, every good whatever it is, is just a glimpse of how good it will be. It's just a small window into the wonderful blessing, the enormous blessing that is coming to us when Christ returns. Well, what about the other side of the contract? What does God say about those who choose to disobey him? Have a look at verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I'll bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. God will withdraw. God will withdraw his goodness to his own people. What a a terrible description here of being on the wrong side of God. As you read through the chapter, curse upon curse is piled one upon another. It is graphic, isn't it? As each curse is described as, I think purposely, a reversal of the blessings. They're often painted as the reversal. That is, you you will struggle for food. Uh, Your crops will fail. Uh, Farming is going to be frustrating. It is going to cause you starvation and your death. Uh, Your health, it will deteriorate. Your safety, there will be no safety. You will live in fear. God will send wild animals to devour you and your enemies will defeat you. You will be afraid. You will be very afraid. And you will suffer the worst of afflictions, paranoia. You will be afraid even when there is nothing to be afraid of. How awful is that? Those who hate you will rule over you. Your land will be laid waste. God will take no notice of your, of your offerings and your sacrifices and your festivals. There'll be no atonement for sins. There'll be no Sabbath festivals that God takes delight in. Nothing. God will punish you, he says, for your sins seven times over. And here is the worst thing of all. God himself will be against you. You will be on the wrong side of the God 
who can show enormous love and kindness and mercy, the God who can rescue and has rescued, you will not know that God. That God will turn against you. That God will be your enemy. Just listen to how personal the curses are from verses 14 onwards. This is God enacting a curse. Verse 14, I will bring on you sudden terror. Verse 17, I will set my face against you. Verse 18, I will punish you for your sins. Verse 21, I will multiply your afflictions. Verse 22, I will send wild animals against you. Verse 24, I myself, even more emphatic, will be hostile towards you. Verse 28, I myself will punish you. How awful is it to have the God who is sovereign over all, the creator, be against you? And that is what, this is what God says will happen if you remain hostile towards God, if you refuse to listen. If, this is what God is saying. To the one who keeps shaking their fist at God, who doesn't care for God and doesn't care for his commandments or tries to do battle with God, God says, I will be the victor. I will win this battle. I will come out on top. And he says to the one who keeps rebelling, I will punish you, I will crush you. That is how devastating it is. That is how personal it is because our rebellion is a personal affront to God. You've thumbed your nose at God and God gives you what you are due. It's it's not a pleasant topic, isn't it? And it reminds us of hell, doesn't it? It reminds us of God pouring out his anger on sinners, as it says in the New Testament, and how God uses those graphic metaphors to describe what it's like. An, uh, An everlasting fire, a lake of burning sulfur, where it is never quenched. And Jesus didn't back away from talking about this judgment, didn't he? He spoke plainly about hell. In fact, he speaks about hell more than anyone in the New Testament because he doesn't want anyone to go there. Have a look on your outline. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 is a chilling verse. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his, paint, with his powerful angels... He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But I want you to notice a couple of things about God's judgment which are really good. The first one is, back in Leviticus, God is patient. Do you notice God's patience? God is is not just flying off the handle. Uh, He's not losing his cool so often like we do. He's actually giving his people, he's he's just given them in the first half of the chapter one huge opportunity to be blessed in the land. But he says, if they refuse to listen, here is what he's going to do. And then he keeps on reiterating it if they keep rebelling. Have a look, verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, this is what I'll do. Curses are coming. But verse 18, if after all this you will not listen to me, This is what I'll do. Verse 21, if you remain hostile towards me and refuse to listen to me, here's what I'll do. 
Verse 23, if in spite of these things you do not accept my correction but continue to be hostile towards me, here is what I'll do. Or verse 27, if in spite of this you will still not listen to me but continue to be hostile towards me, this is what I'll do. Here is a God who doesn't take delight in the death of one sinner, who holds out the arm of, of love and grace and forgiveness for as long as he possibly can who gives everyone an opportunity to turn to him. A God who is slow to anger. A God who, uh, as the Apostle Peter says, is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But notice the second thing about God's judgment here. What is the reason given um, that they will experience these curses? Look at verse 19. It's pride. God will break down their stubborn pride. That, that's the very heart of sin. That is, that is what we find when things go wrong in the Garden of Eden. It's when we say to God, no, I will do it my way. I'm in control. I am the boss here. It's my life. And I will fit you in where I want you to fit in. And I don't want to listen to what you have to say. That is a personal affront to God. That infuriates God. That is us being stubbornly prideful, stubbornly proud. It's the very reason why Israel misses out on the blessings in the promised land. They only have themselves to blame. They were proud. It's the reason why people today miss out on the blessings to come in Christ because they refuse to listen to God, they refuse to obey God and they only have themselves to blame. But have a look at a beautiful word at the end of this chapter. The word is but, but, in verse 40, but if they confess their sins... I will remember my covenant with Jacob, Isaac and Abraham. That is a beautiful word in Leviticus and that is a beautiful word throughout uh, the Bible. But here are how bad things are. Here's how sinful you are. Here's how holy God is. But if you confess your sins... See, God is saying God is absolutely committed to gathering a people to himself to be blessed to be their God, to call them his people. If they confess their sins, they will be part of that people. That is a wonderful hope held out to Israel. It's a wonderful hope held out for us, isn't it? You hear the same buts in the New Testament, don't you? But God in his great love for us sends Jesus. But God in his great mercy... He takes sin upon himself. Uh, And in Galatians chapter 3, the part that was read out earlier, we read that the curse of Leviticus 26, the curse that Israel are deserving of because they cannot keep God's holy law and neither can we, that curse has been lifted by Jesus. Jesus has become the curse for us, says Galatians chapter 3. 
What have we learned in the book of Leviticus as we've gone through uh, 27 chapters? We've learned that God is holy, that we are sinners, that we deserve to die. The penalty for disobedience was death. But Galatians, well, Galatians verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10 agrees. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. We're cursed. We're doomed. But here is the good news according to Galatians. Jesus lifts the curse. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And that is a wonderful thing because God is actually giving people opportunity to repent. He's actually holding off the judgment, holding off that death penalty that is spoken of time and time again in Leviticus. He's holding that off in his great patience so that people might turn to him. Acts 17 says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so there is a choice before us and there is a choice that we are called to put before others. On the lips of Jesus, this is the choice. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life because Jesus has dealt with the curse on our behalf. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath, God's anger remains on them. Or in the words of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, he says, enter through the narrow gate. Jesus is talking about himself. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many, many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So this morning, as, as we finish up uh, in the book of Leviticus, so we finish up on this chapter, uh, chapter 26, can I ask you where you stand, firstly, with that choice, uh, with that decision, uh, between blessing and cursing, that we've seen actually has its focal point in Jesus, how you've responded to Jesus. Um, can I encourage you, if you haven't made that decision, to put your trust in Jesus, to have secure those blessings to come, that you do that today, that you don't delay? Because the alternative, as we've seen this morning, is so, so awful. This is a big decision. This is not a trivial decision. This is a really important decision. There's lots of decisions that you can a thought you can get wrong and it won't matter into eternity. In fact, but this decision matters into eternity. So, so deal with that today. Come and talk to one of us today. But let me also um, encourage you to keep putting this decision, this choice, before people. This Christ who has lifted the curse for us and offers forgiveness and hope and redemption and blessing, and blessing to come. Keep 
bringing that decision. Keep praying for people to make that decision in Christ. And um, as we head into the season uh, of Christmas and Good News Week, there are lots and lots of opportunities to do that. So let me keep encouraging you to put that choice before people in a whole variety of ways. Let's pray. Father God, we want to give you great thanks uh, for your wonderful promises in the Bible. Uh, The promise that began in Abraham uh, to gather a people to yourself, to bless them and that through them you might bless the world. We thank you for your commitment to this promise, that you're a God who keeps your promise. Uh, We thank you that uh, as we've looked at through the book of Leviticus, you are a holy God, um, that we are not entitled to be part of your people. We are sinners deserving of judgment. And yet we give you great thanks that in Christ you have lifted the curse that we deserve. Please help us to put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And please give us courage and love and boldness as we call upon others um, to make that choice and put their trust in Jesus. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.